News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. And it's the 12th of August on this Thursday. Um, I'm Stuart Lohman, coming to you from the Joburg office. Uh, my colleague, Alec Hogg, is taking a trek east, as they say, with another colleague of mine, Clive Eckstein. They've headed off to the Drakensberg. Uh, for a bit of pre-planning for the Business Investment Conference, which will be hosted by Business and many speakers at the end of the month. And not you at the inaugural conference. What can people expect for those who are coming? I know we might be a bit limited by numbers, but I know it was a bit of a humdinger last time. It was incredible. I, you know, I listened to speakers that I didn't actually think I would understand what they were saying, but they managed to, yeah, every single person had something really incredible to say. Yeah, I know we're looking forward to it. Um, Alec didn't leave us empty-handed, though. He did chat to Paul O'Sullivan, who was at the inaugural conference. Um, mm. We'll bring some of that interview in the show today. Paul touches on the digital vibes and Mkizi saga. Uh, not a pretty read or listen, to be honest, but it has to be done. Um, also in the show, uh, my colleague Justin Roberts will talk to Pete Fulion and give us all things markets. We chat to Phil Craig from the Cape Advocacy Group on a poll they've recently run. Um, and it looks like more and more people are swinging towards Cape secession and looking for a, rent, a referendum to see if there is any value in that move. Uh, we also hear from Michael Jordan, uh, the brainchild behind Bank Zero, which went live this week. And then my colleague Nadia speaks to Match Kit's Mike Sharman on crowdfunding for the Olympian, Olympic medalists, uh, which should be a lot of fun. Uh, just what's driving the website, uh, big top of the pops is Anthea Jeffrey. She says we've got one, one day left to comment on the constitution change that the ANC is looking for with regards to expropriation without compensation. Uh, the DA's Dr. Leon, Leon Schreiber talks about the ANC's, as he calls it, evil cadre deployment. And an interesting, interesting one for holidaymakers, Sam Air has suspended flights into and out of Plettenberg Bay. Uh, those two, three stories running nicely on the biznews.com platform. Nadia, from your side, how's YouTube and Business TV looking? So one of the videos that's been really well watched is the interview between Alec and uh, Sullivan yesterday. So he unpacks the affidavit that's been released by the Special Investigating Unit about Digital Vibes in Kize. So it's fascinating to listen to. Another interview that's also been well watched is Alec's interview with Ted Blom, who unpacks the Madupi crisis after the explosion that's happened there. And also the fact that we've had, we're now having the worst load shedding since 20, 2007. And the flash briefing video from yesterday is also doing very well, which just covers the daily headlines. Lovely. Thank you. I see there's a similarity with what runs on the podcast channel radio. Uh, there we've got the interview with Magnus on Cape Independence, Cadre deployment and the Madupi explosion. The Paula mm-hmm. Sullivan piece on Digital Vibes and Mkizi, and then the Ted Blom piece on Madupi and his guarantee that there will be load shedding. That's what he has to say. Um, but before we get into the show, uh, let's check in on the markets. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Over to you, President Sol Ramaphosa's testimony at the State Capture Commission has exposed deep tranches of the ANC's shadow state 
a set of parallel party practices that are often obscured from public view. President Ramaphosa acknowledged before the commission on Thursday that the Gupta family's influence over appointments in government and state-owned entities was not detected or addressed until it was too late. Ramaphosa was continuing evidence he gave on Thursday, on Wednesday. He had also unpacked his experience serving as deputy president under former President Jacob Zuma. And during Zuma's presidency, the Gupta family amassed so much influence over government that people linked to them found themselves at the helm of strategic parastatals, which ultimately gave billions of rands in state contracts to Gupta-owned companies. Evidence leader advocate Anton Myberg asked Ramaphosa about the fact that the New Age newspaper, which was also owned by the Guptas, reported that Brian Molefe would be the CEO of Transnet in 2010 before he had even been nominated. Ramaphosa said the fact that a publication could know the details of appointments was unsettling for South Africa, adding that a red flag had been missed. It was not heeded, and we have to say that. It could cost 2 billion rand and take two years to repair the damage done to the Madupi unit that exploded over the weekend. This is according to Andre Dureta, ESCOM CEO. He said the power utility is currently assessing the damage and investigating events that led to the explosion. At this stage, he says, there is no evidence pointing to the explosion being a result of sabotage or any nefarious actions. It has led to a loss of 700 megawatts of power, putting further strain on the national grid, which is barely avoiding load shedding as it is. ESCOM celebrated the completion of all Madupi units just last week. The rules allowing license exemptions for the generation and operation of 100 megawatts of power have been gazetted by Mineral Resources and Energy Minister Gwede Montashe. Amendments to Schedule 2 of the Electricity Regulation Act, which enabled the change, were published on Thursday. President Ramaphosa in June announced that the license threshold would be lifted from 1 megawatt to 100 megawatts in a bid to bolster energy security. At the time, he said the additional energy supply would help reduce the burden on ESCOM. Excellent. Thanks, Nadja. Uh, Justin, you got the markets for us, please. Thanks, Stu. Uh, the JSE All Share Index was slightly lower at 69,100. In the currency markets, the rand was largely flat against all the major currencies to 14 rand 76 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 44 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 31 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,748 an ounce. A Kruger rand will put you back approximately 27,000 rand. Brent crude is lower at $71.90 a barrel and the premier cryptocurrency will cost you 660,000 rand. In the financial news, South Africa's second, large tele- second largest telecommunications provider by market capitalization, MTN, released its half-year results for the interim period ended 30 June 2021. Despite a number of financial metrics improving on a year-on-year basis, its bottom line was slightly lower. However, this didn't concern the market, with the share price up more than 3% as the share price hovers around the 120 rand level. Pepco and Cashbuild have terminated discussions over the sale of the building company after failing to get approval for the 1 billion rand deal from the Competition Commission. This approval was necessary for the deal, which had a deadline of August 16. The two parties said on Thursday they had been unable to agree on an extension and had called off the talks. The Competition Commission recommended the transaction not take place as it would create a dominant hardware and building material supplier in certain townships and peri-urban areas. Cashbill shares were slightly down, whilst Pepcor shares were up around 2% for the day. And lastly, coal producer Exaro announces half-year numbers, with robust coal prices driving profits to record levels. The company is rewarding shareholders with a large 20 rand 77 cent dividend, which equates to a 75% payout ratio. 
Exara shares were almost 2% lower down for the day. This market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me today is Pitful Yun, Biz News Thursday regular co-host and counterpoint value fund manager, Pit. There haven't been too many more successful fund managers in South Africa over the past 12 months than yourself. So it's awesome to be able to pick your brands during what is reporting season on the JSC. Let's start with the MTN. I know it has been or currently does form part of your portfolio. What did you make of its half-year results? Yeah, MTN is, uh, is uh, I think, the top holding in the fund at the moment, biggest holding in the fund. Um, I, I thought that I haven't had a chance to go through the results in any detail, but uh, on the face it looks uh, positive. And I think the most positive thing is um, that they're actually able to repatriate dollars out of out of uh, Nigeria, and I think that's always been the question mark around it. It's got a lot of debt at the center. How does it repay that debt? Well, they're getting the dollars out, the profits. They're getting it out of Nigeria, and with that, they can they can pay down that debt. And I think that takes probably the biggest worry the market has around the share away. So yeah, I think it's a very positive result in that. Yeah, as you say, MTN has had a great run. The share price has pretty much doubled year to date. So I do find it interesting that it still comprises of your biggest component within your portfolio. What's has the risk reward profile changed at these price levels, given that the risks within Nigeria and Iran, although le- although less, still largely remain? Yeah, those risks are still there. And right now, where the share price is now, you're probably not being paid as much for taking the risk on as you were six months and nine months ago. Uh, but I still think you're being compensated for the risk. Uh, and the risk is reducing. As they're getting more money out of Nigeria, the risk is actually reducing. So it's, that's probably right. Um, I still think it's a cheap share. Globally, M10 is probably one of the cheaper telecom shares out there. Um, and telecoms generally globally are not expensive. So even in global terms, it's, it's an undervalued asset. Another big story in, in the financial news today was Cashbill's acquisition of the building company from Pepcor falling through. Was this a rational decision from the Competition Commission, especially given that its primary role is to protect consumers? You know, look, I, you know, you could argue that Buco together with the cash board would dominate certain parts of the market. Um, I probably would have preferred them to uh, suggest certain, certain um, uh, sales of certain assets uh, and allow the rest of the business to consolidate. I think consolidation is probably good for the industry. It's good for cash flow shareholders. Um, but yeah, it, it's probably not an unsurprising uh, announcement by the Competition Commission. Um, and let's see what happens going forward. I mean, it's a part of the market which is quite buoyant at the moment. Uh, so it's also not surprising that Buca have said, well, you know, the long stop date has come and gone. Uh, we'd rather hold it. Maybe we get a better price if we sell either to you later or to somebody else later. So yeah, I, I think that's fine. Um, I don't think Cashbill's share price has built in anything for the acquisition. In fact, um, I think the market was quite doubtful about the ability, uh, Cashbill's management's ability to integrate that uh, size acquisition. So it should actually come as a bit of a relief. Uh, we saw the Competition Commission step in to block Grand Parade Investments sale of Burger King to a foreign private equity buyer a few months ago, albeit for different reasons. Having listed businesses yourself, all the red tape involved from the JSE listings requirements to the TRP and Competition Commission, all of this just seems too burdensome. And one can understand the reasons for a number of the small to mid-cap companies leaving the JSE. Look, to do business in South Africa today is 
from a regulatory point of view, burdensome. Whether you're listed or unlisted, there are a host of regulations which you have to adhere to. So, you know, listing is just another set of regulations on top of already quite an onerous set of regulations. So I'm not sure listing per se is uh, is a good or a bad thing. It depends on whether it achieves what you want to achieve through your listing. Um, but regulations are, in this country, um, are quite onerous. So, and whether you're listed or not, it doesn't really matter. Another interesting story, Pete Exara, a 21 rand interim dividend, absolutely printing money, stock down almost 2%. I'm confused, I'm sure, along with every other non-fund manager. Could you somewhat explain the reasons for the weakness in the share price today, given those numbers? Not really. I mean, it's sitting on a dividend yield of 10%, just over 10% at the current price. Um, the market is obviously saying current earnings are not sustainable. Uh, and that's, you know, that's uh, probably, that's quite possible. I mean, both coal and iron ore, uh, iron ore prices have been elevated. Iron, iron ore prices have come down quite a bit over the past few weeks. Um, but even at current iron ore prices and lower iron, iron ore prices, Kumba, which um, XRO is a share in, um, will still be making very good money, probably just as, not as much as it is making now. Um, so, yeah, I think XRO is still very, very cheap. Um, the big question mark, I think, is the capital allocation. Um, they said they're not going to spend any more expansion capex on their coal mines, which is probably right, because in a few years' time, maybe we'll be buying coal, or so they say. Um, but now they've got involved with the, this wind energy business called Synergy. So, you know, if they start allocating a lot of capex to that, I'm not sure the returns on capital are massive in that market at current pricing. So, so that could be a question mark. I think the market might, might be asking a question around that. But otherwise, I mean, the results were, were fantastic, uh, and the dividend is great. Um, and the other thing one has to say to Buxaro, uh, despite it being a cyclical business with major ups and downs in the prices of the commodities it produces, coal and iron ore, over the past 15, 20 years, they've generated an average return in equity of over 30%. So it's, it, it's been a fantastic business to own through the cycle. Um, and I guess we will continue to own it as well. And where do you sit on this ESG fence, Pete? There seems to be such a stark contrast in valuation between the renewable versus the non-renewable related businesses. Without getting into too many of the fundamentals, it just seems to be a bit overdone. Yeah, I, I think it's very much overdone. Um, you know, a, a lot of the battery makers, electric vehicle makers, uh, Tesla being the poster child for those services, are trading at huge valuations. Um, whereas a company like Volkswagen or BMW, who produce as many if not more electric vehicles than somebody like Tesla, is trading at a fraction of, uh, of that sort of valuation. So, so I think it's it's all wrong. And then you have this whole thing about clean energy um, and companies who produce clean energy trading at massive multiples and companies who produce coal trading at multiples of two or three. Uh, the problem with clean energy is you you have to have base load energy. You have to have uh, some form of continuous energy production, either by nuclear or coal or gas or whatever, to supplement your clean energy because the wind doesn't always blow, the sun doesn't always shine. Um, so you still need that. Uh, and by the way, uh, to build wind turbines and um, photovoltaic sensors and so on, it takes raw materials and you need to dig those out the ground uh, and you need to build turbines and, and Photovoltaic, uh, 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 photovoltaic systems with, with those materials. So you can't say we're not going to 
mine anymore because it's dirty. We're just going to have clean energy because you can't have clean energy without you know, the raw material. Sure. And, and lastly, Pitt, staying on the ESG story, um, or should I say the ESG brigade's worst nightmare, Tungela Resources are releasing its first set of results as a standalone business tomorrow. Are you expecting much of the same from what we saw of Exaro today? Look, because of the unbundling process, I think there will be some noise in the numbers. I don't think it'll be quite clear yet what the earnings power is. Um, but we think that'll only start becoming clear with the next set of results. In other words, the results to December. But it is very cheap. It's trading in very low multiples at the moment. We estimate a PE of around two. Uh, and that's just too cheap. I mean, people will still be using coal in three or four and five and six years' time. Um, Tungela will still be around in three or four or five and six years' time. So to put a P multiple of two on it, I think, is borders on the ridiculous. I'm Justin Roberts of Business, and you've been listening to Counterpoint Value Fund Manager Pete Fillion. Paul O'Sullivan is used to criminals and reading documentation uh, that comes out of uh, various law suits where well, we've got the SIU, Special Investigation Unit, uh, investigation into the former health minister, Zweli Mkhize, and what is now pretty well known in the uh, parlance in, in the popular press, having uh, been disclosed first uh, in, I think it was in Daily Maverick, and then uh, picked up elsewhere, uh, this investigation into digital vibes. Paul, I've read through the affidavit. Uh, I know you have too. Uh, it seems as though not even, uh, we haven't even got vaguely close to the kind of exposure that should be given to this, where you have a health minister. Uh, it leaves little to the imagination of the uh, malfeasance that's been going on here. But maybe you you're so close to these kind of episodes you can unpack it for us in real simple terms of what went down yeah okay well there's no doubt in my mind um the 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 real principles if you like to call it that the architects of the crimes that took place and they are crimes are these uh, the second and third respondent which is tahira matha and nadira mita um and what they did they got somebody they knew <laughs> you know very amateurish in the way they got this lady called Radha Hari Ram, who's a fourth respondent. They got her to go and register a company and they called the company Digital Vibes. I imagine they chose the name of the company. She knew nothing about, she was, you know, if somebody asks you to register a company in, in your name, but they're going to use it, steer clear of them. You know, that's a big red flag. Um, and then what they did, they introduced another person, a chap by the name of Naidu, who also knew nothing about it. And the next thing, he gets a phone call and tells him, by the way, we're making you a director. You're going to get 10% of the company um, and you'll get 10% of the profits and blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, he got nothing of the kind. Uh, you know, as the money came in, it was siphoned out through other companies um, to the main, what I call the two main accused. Um before we and, go into that, this this lady Radha Hariram, uh, yeah. what is interesting, they're all from Stanga, so you yeah. presumably uh, Mita and Maitha, uh, the two uh, protagonists, as you say, one in their fifties, the other one in her, in her early thirties, uh, they are all from Stanga. 
they tapped onto people that they knew. And, and the lady who, who's the CEO of Digital Vibes, uh, which we now all know about, is actually a, a manager at, the, at a service stuff. station. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Petrol um, station. So, yeah, so not, yeah, really, yeah. Not, not really a sophisticated business person. Well, yeah, having said that, there are some fairly, you know, some of these filling stations out there are quite big businesses. Um, but that's not the point. You didn't need to be a businessman. The contract that was issued to this company didn't require a businessman. It required communication specialists. And I'm not talking about somebody who just happens to know how to communicate quite well. You know, um, it required somebody with, with specialist qualifications and specialist skills. Of course, I had none of these skills bring on uh, Mr. Naidu. So Naidu comes along. Well, he doesn't even go there. You know, they phone him and they tell him, listen, we've got the perfect uh, position for you. We're going to make you a director. We've got this tender. We're going to win the tender. Um, you know, the whole thing was plot and plan right from the get-go. And then they, they, they had a, a, a group of 10, uh, we'll call them uh, tenderers, you know, prospective contractors, of which there was probably only one in there that could have got the job. And that that wasn't them. Um, and when it came to the point scoring exercise, they fraudulently downscored the points on their competitor um, so that they would win the tender. And the tender was created, the tender document, for want of a better expression, was created by this fellow Naidu. Uh, they asked him to put a plan together so they got him to do all the donkey work, and then they adopted that plan and made it their their company's plan. And this this guy, um, you know, sacrificial lamb for want of a better expression. And then the company that if 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 the tender was required, I don't I don't think it was. I think everybody knew what was going on with COVID nineteen. You didn't need to get an A five leaflet to tell you that there was COVID nineteen in the country. Everybody knew what was going on. The media were covering it intensively, um, and there were regular uh, bulletins by various uh, health, including the minister. But the sad point for the minister is that these people were working for him illegally. They shouldn't have even been working there in the first place. So he brought them with him from COGTA, which is the uh, cooperative government uh, ministry. He brought them with him to health. Um, and, you know, they weren't even properly appointed. They were working there and dishing out instructions to people as if they were the minister. And then I, I guess they created this tender or they got him to agree that the tender should be created. Either way, uh, sadly for him, he's the sixth respondent. Uh, sorry, his, he's the fifth respondent and his wife is a sixth respondent, they've been named, and sorry, it'd be, um, it wouldn't be his wife, it'd be his son, I think, or daughter. Daughter, yeah. Yes, daughter. But, yeah. So but the, himself and his daughter have been named as a fifth and sixth respondent, and in the affidavit, they outrightly accuse them of corruption. Um, very strangely, the amount is only 7,000-something rand, which is two visits by a building um, maintenance company to, to the house of Mkhizi. Uh But I think as the trial goes on and on and on, they'll probably find that there are some but the real, gratification. Yeah, the real story is the son of Mkhizi who went to the 
Stanger petrol station owner, the so-called CEO yes. of Digital Vibes, and picked up bags of cash. Correct. Uh, Correct. So clearly, although the minister himself uh, is only being fingered for seven or eight thousand rand, yeah. uh, the the reality there was first of all when he was asked about it, he lied. Yeah. Uh, he he, and that's in the affidavit as well. But secondly, then his son goes and picks up bags of yeah. a million rand a time. Yeah. Uh, from the garage station no, owner. It, but it, it's, it's just it, crazy it, stuff. This. It's a problem. And the, the problem with this type of corruption, as you know, corruption is a covert crime. It's not an overt crime. When you go in and rob a bank, you know, if there's video footage and it's all there. If you hijack somebody's car, it's, it's, it's an overt crime. If you commit murder, there's a body lying on the floor. Um, but corruption is a covert crime. The people involved in it are not advertising what they're doing. And in this case, it relied on a whistleblower. And it seems to me the whistleblower mm, blew the whistle um, and and blew it in, in the direction of the Daily Maverick. And uh, the Daily Maverick do what they do well, and they exposed it. So I think at the end of the day, this affidavit, the, the, the person signing the affidavit is a very professional woman. Um, she seems to be a little bit bothered about the hearsay in the affidavit. I wouldn't be too bothered about that. It's not an affidavit for a criminal prosecution. It's an affidavit in a civil matter um, to have all the, the, the assets seized and stuff like that. Now, with a criminal prosecution, you have to prove your evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. In a civil matter, it's on a balance of probabilities. And certainly, having read this on a balance of probabilities, um, not having seen the response of the respondents, Unless this lady has sucked all of this out of her thumb, I think they're in a lot of trouble. Paul, what happens now? Because reading this, certainly from as an outsider, uh, this Mesa and Mitha, the uh, the two assistants to Zwilliam Kizia, the health minister, they should be in jail. Uh, Mkizia well, himself should be in jail. His son should be in jail. They, if, they should certainly if, all be in court anyway to explain themselves. And then one would expect that they will be convicted and sent to prison. Um, I they scooped up. They scooped up eighty million rand of taxpayers' yes. money, which they siphoned out of this and delivered nothing, according to this affidavit. Now, yeah, why is that not happening? Think... Why, why is it not happening that they're being taken to court? That they're being arrested? They that there is some charge against them? Well, criminal investigation. It's not like a civil matter. So in, in this case, it's very easy to put together. They've had six months. So actually, they've had a long time to put all this together. It's Investigating corruption is not a five-minute job. So what we have here is, as you say, it's a civil matter. So to freeze the assets. But then the, uh, in, the criminal investigation presumably is going to be more detailed and take a little longer. But eventually, if unless the, uh, the the affidavit, as you say, has been sucked out of the uh, the SIU's um, thumb, uh, the, all of that yeah. truth will then be proven, I, I, and then I they will go to so Obviously, we have access to um, forensic databases and stuff. So what I did was I just ran some of the information that's in here quickly, um, mm-hmm. and I've been able to verify it. So I'm, you know, I'm pretty certain this is fairly accurate. 
At Bright Rock, we believe that change can unlock amazing opportunities. We've partnered with industry leaders to provide you with tips and tools to help you navigate life's big change moments. Welcome to this week's thought leadership feature made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs mesh life insurance that changes as your life changes. It's a warm welcome to Phil Craig from the Cape Independence Movement. Phil, I've been talking to various people on all sides of the whole Cape Independence debate, but not many of them have got facts. Lots of them have got, well, there's plenty of opinions around, but you've now got facts. You've now done another poll to update the previous one, which already seemed as though many people in the Cape were quite interested in at least having a referendum, if not breaking away from South Africa. Yeah, that's that's the case. And uh, look, I think it's important that we do have uh, you know a data and independent data that gives us some credible picture of what's actually going on. Yeah. How was your latest survey conducted? We use Victory Research again, and obviously they're a very well-respected uh, and independent organisation uh, run by Gareth van Onselen. And uh, yeah, as we did last year, we uh, we, we approached them, and uh, yeah, obviously they designed the poll. We obviously gave them some of the questions that we wanted the answers to, uh, but they would then phrase the question and structure the poll in, in a sort of scientific manner so that the results are, are, are meaningful and, uh, and credible. And this particular poll has a, a margin of error of, of 4%. It does look like the weight is now or the balance is now turning towards people in the Western Cape who actually want independence. Absolutely. And I think, you know, it's one of these situations where people kind of also have to look slightly outside of the box and and understand everything in its correct context. So some of the headline numbers in these polls will will, will probably catch people people unawares, but certainly wouldn't catch us unawares. So we've now got to the situation where 58 percent of people in the Western Cape want a referendum on Cape independence. So a clear, clear majority and well past the margin of error for any poll amongst the the DA's own voters. That goes up to 65 percent. And I think when we take that in conjunction with the fact that the DA have already called this enabling legislation or announced they're bringing this enabling legislation before Parliament to call referendums, we now have a scenario where the provincial government wants to be able to call referendums and an overwhelming, not certainly a, a substantial majority of Western Cape voters want a referendum on Cape independence, which includes two thirds of the DA's own voters. So there's this clear, clear, clear mandate for a referendum on Cape Independence and that was that that was perhaps the most meaningful statistic out of there but but the one that goes with that and perhaps will even catch more people unawares is that 46.2 percent of registered voters in the Western Cape now want Cape Independence outright so not only are we in a situation where the majority and a clear majority want a referendum on Cape Independence but but we're now within spitting distance of winning a referendum on Cape Independence I think it's 40 46 6.24 and something like 49% against and and just over 4% that are undecided. So, yeah, we we really are entering a new era of of politics in the Western Cape and and this poll is significant. Um, And I think probably just to sort of to give the context, people will say, look, you know, is is that really, really believable? Obviously, this is an independent poll. Last year, it was 36%. This year, it's up to 46%. We've had a significant move. But but, but there's a statistic there that people perhaps don't look at. And, and, and that is that, that in this poll, 76% of people in the Western Cape want the provincial government to have more power over its policies. And I think that 
that's the line that's blurring. I mean, there's, there's an absolute uh, universal agreement that the Western Cape must be able to choose its own policies. And and for people like us, it's independence. We're arguing for that because we, we feel our halfway houses aren't going to fix the issues. Uh, but but the people that aren't, support caping in, aren't supporting Cape independence are still supporting federalism, perhaps confederalism, a greater autonomy. So, that, so there's, there's actually a huge groundswell of opinion. People have had enough of a government we don't vote for and they want to be able to chart their own path. I read a, a, a fascinating piece by David Bullard. Not everyone's cup of tea, but I think he's a wonderful writer uh, on politics with this <laughs> week, where he said when he moved to the Western Cape, he got on a plane, flew for two hours and arrived, he says, in a different country, that happened to use the same currency. Is this what is now starting, the penny starting to drop? When you're sitting in the Western Cape, which is well-governed, pretty stable from most uh, respects, and you see the pictures that the whole country saw of the looting and the riots going on up in the north, did that play any role whatsoever in the results of your polling? Well, I'm sure. I'm sure it absolutely did, and we we actually asked people, look, you know, did did those events uh, play a role, or did that did that did they did, did they influence how they feel? And and uh, look, a, a, a large number of people, about about half the people, said they were they were affected by that. Naturally, it would have a big significance. I remember at the time uh, we tweeted out as an organisation, uh, people of the Western Cape, you're now watching a trailer for a film about the rest of your life. And I think that you know, and I think one of the things that that we've got in Cape Independence a lot of people in the Western Cape are sheltered. They're in this bubble. They don't really understand just how bad it's got in the, in the Western Cape. So clearly that's a part of it. How bad it's got in the Western... You said how bad it's got in the Western Cape, Phil? Uh, then, then a definitely a Freudian slip. Look, clearly things aren't perfect here, but how bad it's got in the rest of the country and what and what lies in store for the Western Cape if it doesn't get out while it still can. I think you have to kind of look at, you know, one of the interesting things is when we look at Cape Independence, what's behind Cape Independence is, is ideology. It's a political ideology. The, the Western Cape fundamentally wants different things to the rest of the country. We, we've you know, we consistently elect a different government and whilst you know, the other eight provinces of South Africa, whatever they think of the ANC, or whatever they say they think of the ANC, they keep electing it. Uh, the, you know, the Western Cape and the majority of Western Cape voters have never, in 27 years, voted for the ANC. We don't want the ANC. We've never wanted the ANC. They were briefly a minority government and never to be repeated again. We want to get out of that that situation. And what do you see? So you see the Western Cape, uh, what, you know, with, with, without us speaking for any political party, you know, the Western Cape has elected the DA for three straight terms. The Western Cape clearly wants a DA government at this point in time and, and the DA are standing for non-racialism and they're standing for a, for a, what they call a social market economy and clearly anybody can see that the Western Cape is substantially better run than the rest of the country but what but what's the Africa saying in return is is look hang on a second we don't like the ANC but there's no alternative we can't vote for the DA uh, you know that doesn't represent our values and actually what they're doing in that process is, reden- is re- rendering the wishes of the people of the Western Cape entirely 
entirely redundant. The, the rest of South Africa may want these parties to change into different policies, but the people of the Western Cape have elected the DA three, yeah, three times in a row. We want those policies. We want non-racialism. We want a social market economy. We want to fix our problems. And actually, South Africa wants something different. That's their choice. Uh, but actually, they can't expect to take us down with them. And that's the, that's the fundamental thing behind Cape Independence. And I think that's the recognition that increasing number of people are realizing that, look, you know what, this might not have been their first choice as a solution. But here we are. These are the realities. South Africa isn't going to self-correct. It's doubling down with expropriation without compensation, with prescribed assets and, and, and national health insurance and whatever comes next. It's not going to change course. It's going to destroy itself. And the Western Cape has never voted for that. They don't want it. And we have to separate ourselves off and look after ourselves. And I hope to God that South Africa turns, turns the corner and realizes its own mistake before it does destroy it. Because, you know, we love South Africa. We're not anti-South Africa. We can't, you know, people in the Western Cape can't vote to save South Africa. We can only vote to save the Western Cape. But you mentioned the Democratic Alliance. Now, with the ANC being at a all-time low, it's yeah. been extremely well documented, the flaws in that party. The Democratic Alliance surely <coughs> would be looking to itself as a potential future government, or if ever it was, now is the time. So why would they support this call of yours or even the call of the people of the Western Cape when they got a real shot of becoming a significant power in the country as a whole? Well, I think there are, there are two answers to that. So first of all, have they got a real shot? That outside of the Western Cape, they've got 16% of the vote. Have they got a real shot? They, they've, they've, they've perhaps got a shot of having a little bit more influence, of being a, a minor party in, 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 a, in a coalition. Um, but, I mean, they haven't got a shot. You know, it, we often look and say, well, what, is it, what does it take to save the Western Cape? What does it take to save South Africa? On my list, what does it take to save the Western Cape? It takes control of economic policy, control of law, and order and they're probably the two fundamental things that you have to have and the western cape hasn't got those at this point in time and if the da get into the you know a, a coalition government where it's a minority partner it is not going to see its economic policies enacted uh, so that so so first of all the, the da isn't going to save south africa that's the reality the, as much as the da wants to save south africa south africa doesn't want the da they've made it perfectly clear they don't want non-racialism they don't want the social market economy that they actually want the opposite of, of that. And in 2019, one of the statistics that, that gets glossed over because uh, uh, people tend to look at South Africa as a whole or provinces in isolation, but you, you have to split off the Western Cape and then take the other eight together and you'll see the picture. And in 2019, 73.1% of voters in the other eight provinces voted either ANC or EFF, and that was the highest percentage ever. So in 2019, despite everything we already knew, more people than ever before thought the ANC or the EFF were the solution. So in that, where does that leave the Western Cape, who really don't think that? And where does that believe the DA, who just have not been able to sell their dream in the rest of South Africa? It's tragic that they haven't, but that's the reality of the situation. When it comes back to the Western Cape, well, then the DA has to decide. Yeah, the, the, the people of the Western Cape elected a government for the Western Cape. And actually, it isn't OK for the, the DA to decide that they're going to aggregate the will of the Western Cape people to bolster their lack of support in the rest of South Africa. We've elected them as the government, the provincial government,
government of the Western Cape. And they're responsible, the provincial government of the Western Cape is responsible to voters in the Western Cape, not to voters somewhere else, to voters in the Western Cape. And the, and the DA has to understand that, we, that at this point in time, they're elect, they were elected by the people of the Western Cape and they serve the people of the Western Cape. They serve at our pleasure. And if the majority of us want a referendum, they must call a referendum. And if they don't, then the consequences are ultimately going to be that they're, they're going to be brought below 50% in the Western Cape and forced to call a referendum. And we already have seen the Freedom Party, the Freedom Front, for example, the Cape Party too, have openly said, you know, Cordae Mulder is on record saying, if we get you below 50%, we will make a coalition with you. And the terms of our coalition are that you must call a referendum on Cape independence. So, Michael, I am always excited to speak to you. And I was perusing Twitter late last night and I saw the tweet, reached out to you immediately. Bank Zero is here. You must be over the moon. We, we are indeed, Bronwyn. Um, it's been a long journey. We got the license in 2018 and the small team has been very hard at work to make this a reality. And the reality of Bank Zero is free electronic transactions, mobile transactions, free card swipes for all South Africans, but it's not only for individuals, it's also for businesses in South Africa. So we think in this tough time, we can bring significant fee relief to a long-suffering South African population and business segment. What were the biggest challenges in, in getting up and running, Michael? So, so first of all, getting a license was no easy task either. We've got a very competent, very sophisticated regulator, and they set the bar high. But it was a very positive exercise because you need to make sure that, you know, you've got the right board, you've got the right risk management, you've got compliance and audit and, you know, all those type of things, and that there's a business need. Then what we did as a team is we set out to build the entire tech stack ourselves. It's possible these days that you can just go and buy software um, and put it in the cloud and then link it to the payment system. We felt that that was uh, not going to allow us all the innovation that we wanted to do. So the team started by designing the ideal functionality that we want on every smartphone screen and then back engineering it to build the entire tech stack. So that took very, very long. But having done that now, it doesn't only allow more innovation and more functionality, it also makes the cost base very low. And that was super important because otherwise you can't afford zero fees. What what can you do today? I mean, you know, when we say Bank Zero is here, give me the lowdown. So it's a fully functional transactional account, not just the entry-level account, a fully functional transactional account for individuals and for businesses. I stress for businesses because businesses are complex. They have mandates. They have different types of needs like salary payments and mandates. You know, different people have different authority levels and so on. So anything electronic, payments, transfers, electronic, electronic funds, transfers, debit orders, you know, drawing cash at any ATM or at retailers all around the country, and importantly, doing so for zero fees as long as it's an electronic transaction. Does that, so if I onboard, can I do that today? Yes, you can do that today. It's going to take us a few days to deliver a car to you, of course, um, you know, which offers different functionality, but we onboard you in a fully electronic way. We do all the FICA and all those type of risk checks. And when we activate you through a fully electronic process, 
um, you ready to go. You'll, of course, take a selfie of yourself, which uh, appears on your card, and we use that uh, for security purposes as well. But we up and running and ready to go. The vision. So let's talk about the medium-term vision. I mean, now you're up and running and, and you're ready to, to take on the big banks out there. Um, but, you know, five years out, where do you see Bank Zero? Okay, Bronis, uh, it's a very good question. As a startup, you can't do everything, you know, and we don't have a vision of being a fully-fledged uh, financial services group. We're attacking that area where we think we can make the biggest difference, which is transactional banking with fees. We think, you know, those fees are too high. But we have no aspirations to do, let's say, wealth management or insurance or lending. Rather, what we want to do is partner with the best players in the industry. So it's a type of ecosystem thinking. We want to be a platform and then partner with players so that we can bring our customers the best deals out there, not just, let's say, our insurance product or our lending product. When you say partner with, with other players and create this ecosystem, are we talking about uh, both the, the banks, the, the legacy banks, even the, the new age banks? So potentially, you know, Time Digital Discovery is also in very much this digital space. And then I would assume, uh, I spoke to Shamil Yusuf yesterday, that the telecommunications players are going to be very closely aligned to you. Um, yes, so, so we in time, I need to say in time because not, we're not ready for it yet, we'll partner with whoever can bring the best deals for our customers. So we're going to look for, you know, the best insurance providers, best lending providers, best wealth management advisors, and then give our customers open access in an easy, intuitive way to those players. And yes, you're quite right that it could include telco companies. You know, the whole vision of a telco bank is one that may or may not happen uh, in future. But, but basically what we're saying is this is a very customer-focused offering. And instead of having all your own products and trying to cross-sell that to the customer, we just want to you know, give customers a rewarding experience by banking with us. And again, the transactional bit is the, is, the, is the platform piece, and then we'll partner on everything else. Before I let you go, talk to me about the, the management team. Yes. So Yatin Arsi is a, a force of nature CEO. Um, he's got a technology background, but is also very, very savvy commercially. And he's been painstakingly coming up with, you know, feature after feature, functionality after functionality. For example, protecting yourself from debit orders, because rogue debit orders is a big problem in the industry. Or mandates for businesses that I spoke about earlier that you can change you know, while you, I don't know, on the golf course or skiing the slope somewhere, you know, give people different authority levels. And surrounded by them is, is a whole team, there, you know, from treasurer to CFO to COO, all people that we've handpicked, mostly that we knew from many years ago at FNB, that we knew can span from strategy to detailed implementation. The entire team is just 30 people, so that helps with a very low cost base. And uh, most of the founders have put in capital. So it's only founders that have finances, no institutions, and have not drawn salaries uh, up till now. So um, it really is a skin in the game for them. I did say that was the last question, but this is really the last question. Zero fees. How do you make money in this relationship? <laughs> you know, Brian, it's so funny. That's actually the question I get most often, you know, particularly if you, I don't know, at a dinner party or a bride. And I always say tongue in cheek, don't worry about bankers. Bankers do know how to make money. They'll look after themselves. But uh, maybe, maybe more seriously, um, the 
interest margins um, are, are still there to be had. So the difference between what you pay retail interest rates and what you do when you do wholesale investments. So the interest on, on the balances is a big part of the income. Then there's payment interchange that you get when people make payments to your account or when they swipe a card or when people buy things like airtime and electricity. But the most important part of all of this is a very, very low cost base. If you had a huge cost base, hundreds and hundreds of employees and big offices with I don't know, wine collections and art collections and so on, you'd have to charge much higher fees. So the real thing here is very low fees, senior uh, bankers who are not drawing any salary, and we can leverage that in favor of individuals and businesses so they can bank for free. Michael, thank you so much. Always, as I said earlier, just such a pleasure engaging. Your passion is tangible. And further, it is amazing to see a vision coming to reality. I am going to go directly from this interview to onboard with Bank Zero. Joining me today is the founder of MatchKit, Mike Sharman. Mike, what's your background? I'll give you the highlights package. I think there's been a few articles on Biz News uh, where Alec and I have spoken in the past about retroviral and influencer marketing and content creation. And um, back in 2018, I think that's a good part to start for this story. Uh, Brian Habana had retired from rugby. We uh, were classmates. I always joke about having known him since he was a skinny scrum half. And, uh, you know, Brian has many hidden talents that a lot of people don't necessarily know about, like starting a an IT degree, and then obviously the, the world of rugby luring him in before he could finish mm-hmm. that. But when he was playing in France, the, the European teams are really good at focusing on rugby player education because they know that those careers are going to come to an end at some stage. And uh, unlike their contemporaries, most of us only have to worry about retirement in our 60s or 70s. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for athletes, they, they have to worry about retirement in their 20s or 30s. So there's almost like... Um, there's almost like an instant death from your first occupation. Then you have to worry, what am I going to do about, what am I going to do next? And, um, you know, Brian was uh, studying and part of his French thesis was actually focusing on life of athlete after his or her sport. And okay. I think that if you look at a lot of the rugby players that were involved in, in, in Brian's career, so many of them really struggled to adapting to life after those absolute highs. Mm. And there is a lot of depression. We're seeing more and more mental health issues being spoken about, not just in rugby, I think because there's still a lot of uh, stigma for, for men to be very uh, macho within that space. Mm. But we're seeing it more and more from the Olympics. We're seeing it with uh, the tennis world. And um, after having those insights and those understandings about the struggles of rugby players, Brian was really interested around creating these connections and these synergies uh, based on, on, on that course that he was going through. What we thought was, how can we bring more insights and intel into the space? How can we bring more intelligence into that space? And uh, there was a lot of backwards and forwards. We spoke to a few brands and we realized that actually as people, I myself in particular, I'm not a business plan kind of person. I'm a very gut-driven individual. And I like to create service businesses where you can start generating revenue from day one because we know that cash flow is the number one killer for small business. So 
we had all the success with Retroviral as a viral agency and a branded content agency. Okay. Why don't we go and create a sister agency with Brian, with Ben Kopinski, with Shaka Sisulu, and we created a sister agency to Retroviral called Retroactive. Fast forward to June 2020, uh, last year, the midst of the pandemic, and uh, we went live with a product called MatchKit.co. So MatchKit okay. is a mobile web-based application currently. We're looking at native apps for Android and iOS. But we mm-hmm. just said, let's go to market because athletes for the first time in their career, all of them were stunted. All of them mm-hmm. were put on hold. So mm-hmm. now, for the first time, they can't be selfish and think that their heroism is never going to come to an end because there's mm-hmm. no games. There's training in home. You're in lockdown. Every athlete around the world was stunted in their potential growth. All of them were made to feel what it feels like to retire or to have a life-threatening injury that would prevent them from playing the sport. So going to market, a match kit profile is almost like a digital CV for athletes. Barry Hendricks sounds like the most lovable new president of Sascock because he tells you, oh no, if you've qualified for the Olympics, Sascock is sending you, we're paying for you, we're doing all the things. And it's a great story. It's a great PR spin because he mm. seems like a hero that's come and the mm. broom has swept clean all the travesties of past and day gone by at Sascock. And that's great. But if you're just getting your ticket paid for, your accommodation paid for, and maybe a few balls and some, some nutrition and supplements mm. while you're in Tokyo, what happened in the last five years since 2016? And that for me is the, is the problem. There is no sustainability that's being implemented from the federations to help people nurture that talent. And if you think about our sprinters, think about Wade, think about Akani, think about the rest of that team, that the 100 meter team that recently won um, the world championship title. It's incredible that they do it despite the federational Mm. sport. Like you have to be running at IAAF. You have to be participating in the Diamond League. If you're a swimmer, there's a new league called the ISL. You have to be competing uh, in a place where you're paying dollars, euros, Mm. or pounds. And we know how expensive that is for athletes. So putting all that pressure on Sascock, they eventually came out and said, no, 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 we're sending sending a hockey team to the Olympics. And the men had an incredible run. They they beat, Mm -hmm. drew, and lost to some of the best teams in the world. And, it, and for me, it gave me great excitement to see that they weren't there to just make up the numbers. They could compete. They beat Germany. They drew with the Netherlands. And then they had a couple other losses, which, I mean, was a great effort for zero support in the last decade. Mm. So mm. when Monday, this very Monday, Women's Day Monday, the same <laughs> Barry Hamiana Hendricks, as we're calling him, because he flip-flops left, right, and center, came out on Women's Day and said, sorry, ladies, you were the heroines of the Olympics for South Africa. No budget for you and your bonuses for medals. And then I said, hang on, let's have a look at that medal table, shall we? And the bonus table. So I put out a tweet mm. on Women's Day saying, this is very mm. interesting. And this is, this is factual. There's no emotion involved in it. It's just emotive. I mean, it's just factual, no emotive. Mm. So Wade, if you compare his stats, Wade earned 500,000 Rand for his gold. He earned 150,000 Rand bonus that Minister Fagilin Balula found at the time. And uh, that was a 650,000 Rand bonus. Okay. Chad swimming and getting his silver in 2016, mm. he got a 200,000 Rand bonus. So if we take Tatiana's world record, mm. gold, silver, not even counting the fact that she broke the Olympic record in the 100 meter breast, mm. she should be eligible based on precedence of what 850,000 Rand. And Bianca, our silver surfer, Beitendach, she yeah. should be eligible for 200,000 rand off the back of that result. 
and that experience. So that's all I did in that tweet. I laid out the facts. Mm. And, um, you know, all the, all the tweets have been very polite. Hey, mm. Mr. Natim Tetwa, are you going to get out your taxpayer's checkbook? Where's the support for these women? Oh, and you're announcing from Saskatchewan on Monday on Women's Day. Isn't that ironic? Mm. It's Women's Day, but no bonus for the women. It sounds like a South African story in a nutshell. <laughs> so that's where the whole crowdfunding idea came in for Bianca and for Tatiana. So when the story broke and people were tweeting me back saying, listen, this is really ridiculous. I had uh, some friends at Easy Equity say, this is ridiculous. If you start something, we'll chuck 40 grand into the pot. So I said, oh, okay. love a challenge. So we took Brian's, um, we took Brian's match kit profile. We mm. took, uh, converted his crowdfunding page into a dedication to the Olympians. We then put in the, the URL at the start from that quoted piece from EWN. And um, mm. this was nine o'clock on Tuesday morning. My phone hasn't stopped ringing for the last 48 hours. It's been unbelievable. I mean, we've had, we raised 100,000 Rand in the first hour. And then 24 That's hours incredible. later, we hit a 300,000 Rand. At, at the moment, we're probably on about getting close to 330. The, the momentum's starting to decline a little bit okay. now. But I think it's safe to say we'll probably go close to 340, 350,000 Rand from a whole bunch of small businesses, private individuals, and people mm -hmm. that just um, have seen a few interviews from around the world and said, we, we're going we're to club in. You guys are on about 300 and something now. Are you going to split that equally or in ratio to how much they would have earned had they been paid like the medalists in 2016? This has been the team debate. And I think mm -hmm. that the reality is that you have to split it according to the results and the success mm -hmm. thereof. Otherwise, we're just subscribing to a mediocre kind of culture where everyone mm -hmm. gets a medal for participating. Mm -hmm. The reality is that Tatiana did better, Bianca did less well compared to her. So that should be split according to the results and the achievements. The two okay. medals versus the one medal, the world record versus the no world record, like all that kind of stuff, like that has to come into play. I've had some smart mm. actuary types giving me their views on Twitter. I've opened things up to the crowd again and saying, mm. what do you guys want to do with this? And that seems to be the most agreed upon consensus. You mentioned the Paralympics. Uh, does this not maybe set a little bit of a difficult precedent to maintain? It must be a difficult precedent to maintain. And I think that's it. We have to continue to put pressure mm. on our public servants who mm. are neither really public nor servant-like. Don't you so, think this maybe takes the pressure off of them? No, it puts it on them more because if they aren't raising any money for the athletes, it puts egg on their face. It's exactly the situation mm. with uh, SA Hockey. They weren't going to send SA Hockey again, possibly. And all that media storm made it a lot easier for them to say, oh, of ah. course them because okay. ultimately you want to look like the oh we were always mm. raising this bonus for them and and mm. i think that's ultimately what it is so so the cynical journalistic question there is oh no you you you're not you're letting a, a public servant get off scot-free but i think we're putting the microscope on them further we want to build a fund that is separate and not managed by sascock and is fully transparent and accountable from our side. Mm. And we want to invest in people that are medal potentials. We've already mm. started identifying one or two that we're starting to have meetings with, but we want to support athletes in their three-year journey so that when they get the medal, I get the gooseies. Then we know that we've been in, involved in a sustainable yeah. solution. And it's not this mm. once PR spin that gets a few hits and gets mm. a few retweets. We're not about that life. We're about making better, smarter commercial decisions for people that don't necessarily have the financial acumen. And we don't want them to be bankrupt after their gold medal. We want them to mm. be able to keep going, to be inspired, to inspire a young generation of, of South Africans.
Well, thanks for joining us this evening. Uh, that's it from the Business Power Hour team. Uh, tomorrow is Friday, so unfortunately it won't be us, but you'll have Carrie Adams in your uh, ears. She'll be hosting the Carrie's Corner, talking all things wine and toasting all those in the industry. Um, but from us until Monday, have a good evening. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Business. News.